0: That's why you ran to J-A-O. Exactly. Thank you so much. It's good to be back uh, here at Community Bible Church. Glad um, to see you all. Yeah. Thank you. I'm, it's it's always fun to be here. I always feel like I know more people here than my own church sometimes, since I'm here about as often, it feels like. Uh, pastor and... Oh, thank Kids, you're welcome to leave. (laughs) Jesus loves you, but go somewhere where you might enjoy yourselves more than here for the next half hour, if you'd like. Or not. (laughs) Um, Eugene Peterson is a pastor. Uh, He also is a professor and writer, but he'd say his primary vocation is a pastor. And a number of years back, he was playing with his grandson who was named Andrew. Now, Andrew was at that delightful age of a young child where they're able to scoot around and play with objects, but aren't quite talking or running yet, so you don't actually have to chase them. You can just watch them while staying seated. And Andrew at that age was playing with um, a, a kind of rolly object and he'd push it along the floor, then go chase after it, kind of doing an Australian crawl <laughs> through the carpeting, as you know how small children do. Well, at one point the little bottle rolled, and then it rolled underneath, um, Andrew started chasing it, but it rolled underneath a dresser. Then Andrew sat back on his diapered bottom, turned around, and just began crawling in another direction. Now, this concerned Eugene Peterson, because while he had been watching Andrew before, he thought, what focus, what diligence, what persistence, what energy my grandchild, my grandson is pursuing that rolling object, right? He was so proud, like only grandparents can be. And then, as he watched Andrew just stop and begin to go in the opposite direction, he became tremendously concerned. What a short attention span. What a total lack of focus. What an inability to know what's happening. And he turned to his daughter-in-law, who was sitting in the corner reading a newspaper, and said, Susan, what's wrong with Andrew? And she looked up from her paper, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, I saw the rolling thing go under the dresser. Then he stopped and started walking away. Well, what's wrong with him? And she said, oh, oh, he just doesn't have object permanence yet. And he said, what does that mean? And she said, well, at his age, given his mental development, if he doesn't see it, it's like it doesn't even exist. And he thought about it for a moment, and then Peterson said, oh, I get it. I have an entire congregation of people like that. (laughs) It's the challenge, isn't it, that we worship a God that we cannot see We believe these things that are um, impossible for us to prove right here and now. For those of us who live here in North America, we are thousands of miles and thousands of years distant from any physical object that would remind us of our faith. And so it gets a little hazy at times, doesn't it? I remember speaking to a student named Sarah at a month-long discipleship training camp that InterVarsity does in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Um, She was a student leader at one of the private liberal arts colleges up here in the Northeast, the daughter of um, a very faithful pastor up in Massachusetts, uh, the daughter also of an university staff worker. And she had just come back from Africa after a long missions trip. And we were worshiping. um, We had heard teaching from the book of Revelation. And she came to the small group afterwards in tears, and she just said, what was described was so beautiful and so powerful as i think about the worship of god in revelation 4 and 5 and then i look at my life and how do i know this is true i was in africa i saw these people worshiping with such faith and with such fervor and yet i looked around they had nothing and i come here and we have everything and how can i know it's just not how can i know it's true when there's so little for me to see Our brother who was carrying on the red bucket said, I have a great memory, it's just very short. I think that's true for us as the people of God as well, isn't it? That we've seen God work in our lives, we've heard how God works in history, but it becomes elusive, illusory, ephemeral in our hands. I think, frankly, that's why that book of of remembrances of how God has worked is so critical for us as a congregation, to mark down together what God has done. I bring all this up because I think God has mercy on our short memory. I think he actually plans for it and demonstrates concern over it. We've come to a passage in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, chapter 16, which we had read earlier, verses 1 through 8. I have to admit, when I first received the assignment and looked up the passage, I was a little stumped. I mean, it's pretty clear. Observe the Passover. Here's what you should. Here's what you should do. And I thought, well, you know, faithful preaching. Of the text would say, well, God says observe the Passover. Have a great time doing it. See you next week. And I should just sit down. <laughs> what is there left to say about this passage? You actually, over the last two weeks, have described and experienced as a church the story of the Exodus, how God uses Egypt as an incubator to grow a small family into a mighty nation over the course of 400 years and protects them by bringing them to a place where um, they wouldn't have been attacked and wouldn't have been destroyed as they very well might have been had they stayed in Canaan, which uh, was filled with multiple tribes that would have been hostile to the people of Israel. It was really the marching grounds of multiple empires. So he brings them, I think, to Egypt and incubates them. And so they're a mighty nation and how... As the people encountered increased oppression at a particular era of history, perhaps due to an uprising of the native Egyptians against another Semitic people that had been ruling them for a few hundred years, the Hyksos, God hears their cries for mercy, and he calls a leader for them, one uniquely suited to save them, to be God's agent to that time, a man named Moses. And if you think about Moses' life, you begin to think of how, how God's divine acts, sovereignly controlling history, Comes to fruition in his life. Who better to lead the people out of Israel, I mean, out of Egypt, than a man who could attribute the very fact that he lived to God's mercy and God's salvation? Who better to help an oppressed people with no social status than a man who realizes he owes his life to the intervention of three different women who defy the orders of the most powerful monarch in the Middle East and who demonstrate Even though you may be a woman of no account, who's an Israelite, maybe even though you're just a young girl who's the daughter of someone of no account, maybe even though you're the daughter of a pharaoh, but basically property in the life of that culture, your choices have the power to affect history, if only in the life of a small child. That's his story. Who better to save the people of Israel than somebody who grew up in the very halls of power, who who's familiar with the language, the culture, And all of the education that would have been offered to a grandson of the pharaoh. Who better to save the people of Israel out of Egypt than somebody who actually was familiar with the way politics worked? That power was distributed and not distributed? Who knew how to approach the court and knew how to speak? Who better to save the people of Israel than somebody who, 40 years later, realizes that his people aren't in the palace but are actually laboring? And he's motivated and angry at the injustice and chooses to act. Who better than somebody like Moses? And so God calls a leader out for them. And then with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand, as Dick pointed out two weeks ago, God defeats the gods of the Egyptians. That every one of the plagues that's described in the book of Exodus both demonstrated God's power over the creation, over the world that the Egyptians knew, but in subtle ways challenged um, the very nature of the chief gods that the Egyptians worshipped. He demonstrated his power over the river that was their life and their death. And then God leads his people through the Reed, Reed Sea into freedom. by um, Through a particularly violent and troubling last judgment, where the death of the firstborn of the Egyptians, equivalent perhaps to the death of so many Hebrew males earlier, in that generation, but leads them into freedom through the substitutionary death, sacrifice of a lamb. Where lamb is sacrificed, the blood is painted on their lintels and doorposts, and God's judgment is withheld; His mercy is extended. And so God says here in Deuteronomy 16:1 through 8, "Remember what I did." Remember what I accomplished on your behalf. Remember how concretely it happened, how practically you experienced it, and the implications of freedom that it offers you. Remember it by having this meal where you once again will eat unleavened bread, bread that was very common at the time, bread that would have been given to people who didn't have time to allow the right, uh, bread to rise because of the yeast, bread that was common for poor people who had to do, make do with what they had. Slaughter an animal from your herds and flocks, he says. Remind yourself of the sacrifice that preserved your life. And then remember this central event in your history that will dominate your religious thinking from the time that I did it to the present day. You see, the Passover story is the dominant motif I think throughout the entire Old Testament. You see it time and time again, whenever the Old Testament points to God's salvation or mighty acts, almost inevitably, whether in the histories or the Psalms or in the prophets, the Old Testament ends up reflecting on the Exodus story. It's in all of the Psalms, including several of the ones that Dick mentioned last uh, two weeks ago, in Psalm 74 and I think 114. Um, I think it resonates with the story of what happened in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve first sinned against God and they tried to cover themselves up with leaves and God extends mercy to them even in the midst of their sin. Kills an animal then gives them clothing of leather which would provide even more protection against creation that had turned so violently against them. The entire Exodus story and the Passover story comes, I think, to the high point in Isaiah 53 when, as Isaiah is ruminating and wrestling with the apostasy and the lostness of the people of Israel for several chapters before chapter 53, you begin this shadowy figure begins to emerge. One who will do what Israel was supposed to do, declare God's glory to the nations, introduce God's law to people who don't know it, and yet... Who does what Israel cannot do, which is bring forgiveness of sins. And in Isaiah 53, it comes to this picture of a suffering servant who bears our sins in his place, who becomes a sacrifice on our behalf. From the very beginning at Genesis 3, all the way to the high point of prophecy at Isaiah 53. You have the story of God choosing to redeem and to save by sacrifice. And offering forgiveness and freedom. You have it even embedded in some of the narratives of the Old Testament, this Passover um, celebration. I don't know if you're familiar with the book of Ruth. It's one of my favorites. Um, It's a book where God doesn't appear overtly, but you watch how God just works through very ordinary things people doing the right thing, largely. And Ruth begins um, with this poor woman named Naomi, whose husband moves her and her family to Moab outside of israel during a time of famine that should ring some bells moving somewhere in a time of famine there her sons marry two foreign women who seem to be decent sorts but while they're living in moab the husband dies one son dies a second son dies and she looks at her daughter-in-laws and says you know what there's no future staying with my family i have no other children that you can marry You'd be better off returning to your own families. Maybe they can provide for you. And so one of the daughters, um, Orpah, goes home. But Ruth chooses to stay and says, I'm committing myself to you. And Naomi says, you know, there's no point. My name, Naomi, it's a bad name. Um, You should call me Mara. I'm bitter now. But then they hear at the end of Chapter 1 that even though there's famine now in Moab, a new barley harvest is happening near Bethlehem, which means house of bread. The new barley harvest is exactly the time that the Passover celebration would have occurred. And so Ruth and Mara, bitterness, leave a place of famine and move to a place of plenty. They experience God's salvation and God's provision right around the same time. The Passover feast was being celebrated, but they don't even have to mention the Passover. All they have to mention is at the beginning of the barley harvest, when we were celebrating Passover, they heard God was saving. They heard God was providing. They left their land and went to the promised land. And the rest of the story of the book of Ruth is how God extends his salvation and extends um, his mighty hand and an outstretched arm to care for this, these two women. In the New Testament, the Passover is assumed as well, right? Um, it was the Passover meal that we celebrate um, as we read about the Last Supper. That's what Jesus was doing. It's looking at Jesus on the cross during the course of the Passover and celebration of the unleavened bread that the people of God thought we were remembering how a lamb died in our place and on our behalf in Egypt Perhaps this is what was happening as Jesus died as well. And then Paul picks up that theme and talks about Christ is our Passover lamb. The Passover story is the dominant story in the Old Testament because it's the story of the Exodus, and it profoundly shapes the way we understand the new. And so God begins chapter 16, verse 1, with the words, Observe the month of Abib." Observe the month would have brought to mind of any devout Jew, the language used in the Ten Commandments, which you looked at last week. Because it's that same turn of phrase that God uses when he says, observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. It echoes and alludes to the fact that at various points in time, God asks us to stop and interrupt our patterns, interrupt our routines, interrupt our rhythms, to pay attention to what he's doing, because you both observe something by Looking at it closely and deeply and you observe something by um, being obedient to it, right? You observe the law by not violating it and you observe um, a child, a flower, a day by paying attention. And what God seems to say is obey and pay attention to this feast that I'm giving you. I think one of the reasons that God invites us to um, cease and to observe is that he knows we're people of short memory. Without a constant reminder in our life of what God has done and promises to do, of how he's acting right now and what we expect him to accomplish in the future, we're forgetful people. It's easy to fill the other six days with the pressures and demands, the worries and the hopes, the dreams and the frustration of the life that we um, live. And I think our challenge is... um, Worship, at least in the Old Testament, seems profoundly a massive interruption in the life of the people of Israel. So after the Passover, uh, after chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, where the Passover celebration um, is required, which would have been kind of in March or April, the next section beginning in verse 9 talks about the Feast of Weeks. Fifty days after you celebrate Passover comes the Feast of Weeks, which we all know now from the Greek word Pentecost, 50 days. And so after the first barley harvest, barely a month and a half later, one more time, we as a people are going to leave our homes. We're going to walk our way over to Jerusalem, whether it be one day or three, take another multiple-day celebration to honor the Lord because we've just finished the wheat harvest, and then we're going to go home. So within a 60-day period, you've had to leave your home, travel one to two days, spend some time in Jerusalem, sacrifice, celebrate, feast, and then return home. That would blow almost anybody's work schedule. Then you go a little bit further and you get to verse 13 and you have the Feast of Tabernacles, Shavuot, which reminds the people of Israel that God brought them into the Promised Land. And he said, I want you to go live in tents for a week to remind yourself that this world is not your home. What you have is not permanent. I have always taken care of you. I took care of you in the past and I will take care of you in the present and I'm concerned about you in the future. And so sometime in the mid Early fall, usually around September or August, once again, your entire family would stop everything that they're doing. Your farms would go uncared for, your flocks would go untended, and you would march your way to Jerusalem with the rest of the families of Israel. And you'd interrupt everything in your life to pay attention to what God was doing. I suspect for most of us, the difficulty is we've largely arranged our faith so that it doesn't interrupt our normal patterns. The big exception, of course, being Sunday, because even this morning, and I had to preach, I thought, if I were not a person of faith, I would still be awake at 4.45 when my daughter woke us up. But when she went down for her nap, I would not be driving to Austin. I'd be sitting in my couch, reading maybe the New York Times, eating a leisurely brunch, with an expansive day set out before me to do nothing. Let's just take a moment to savor how good that might be. (laughs) But it's important for us, I think, to observe a Sabbath of coming together and worship. Because it reminds us of what God has done one day out of seven. God thought it was important three other times of the year to block out an entire week to remind ourselves of what he was doing. And it interrupted what was normally going on. Hence, I think there's something about um, our more formal brothers and sisters in the church who observe the liturgical year and for whom advent and lent are important times of fasting where their entire rhythm and pattern of life is disrupted where what they eat how they interact and what they do changes profoundly for a period of time to remember to remind themselves of what god has done it's why i think the monks may have it right when they observe uh, the divine hours and pause, regardless of where they are at work or what they are doing, to worship and pray for 10 or 15 minutes, four, or five, or six times a day. Why, I suspect it may be helpful for us as the people of God occasionally say, as a congregation, let us fast together. There's a major decision coming. There's an opportune time for ministry, or maybe we're just losing track of what God is doing. Let's just disrupt what we do so that we can pay attention And Follow God. I think that's why for the youth group it was so critical to go to York not just because we needed to occupy them for the summer Not just because missions are something that we all should do and it's convenient to do but because pulling people out of their normal patterns and routines for a week asking them to do what they do not normally do Gives you new opportunities to remind yourself of what God is about and what God is doing Remembering is necessary because we so quickly forget About a month ago, I had what really would have amounted to be a terrible, terrible week. I have um, have a a dear friend um, and a colleague in ministry who I think is basically destroying his life right now. He's making a series of bad choices that I think uh, will end his marriage, will really wreck his kids, and is destroying um, the ministries that he has. And um, this caused me a great amount of despair the day that all of this was coming to light two days later um i'm very short-staffed and what i've been praying for was that god would send me two or three people who were qualified to come in at a mid-management leadership level to actually help us advance the work um, of inner varsity and the two people i had been hoping for who had considered coming to new york and new jersey called me that day and said we've decided not to come and then there's about two other things that happened and i remember just feeling completely overwhelmed And I think the only thing that kept me back from total despair was actually stopping to say, I will praise God and remember what he's already done. So I had just learned a week before all this news came out that our region here in New York, New Jersey, had grown faster and larger than any other time in our history. We were serving more students than any other time in the past, and that was God's good gift even though we were short-staffed. We watched 229 students come to faith over the course of the last academic year, one a day which was nearly double what we had seen the year before. I had watched students' lives transformed in front of me that week. And as I forced myself to give God thanks for those things, to remember what he had already done, it at least opened the door for me to continue to praise him into the future, even though I didn't know what the future would look like. When we worship, when we observe these kinds of feasts and fasts, when we gather here on a Sunday, Part of what we're doing is remembering. So we have short memories. Part of what we're also doing, it strikes me, as you read through Deuteronomy 16, 1 through 8, is we're not just remembering, but we're actually reliving God's salvation, aren't we? Because the elements in the meal are actually a physical reminder and reliving of the experience of the Exodus. They were eating a meal in which the key experiences of salvation for the people got retold and relived as they were doing it. So during a Passover meal, there'd be four cups of wine on the table for each person. For those of you who've been to a Seder before, you remember. And each of the four cups of wine are associated with one of God's statements in Exodus 6, 6 through 7. These are the four I wills. The first cup is reminding you, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, which the later Jews reminded is a promise of sanctification, I will protect you and change you. The second one is, I will rid you out of their bondage. I will save you out of bondage um, and judgment. The third one is, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And the fourth one is, I will take you uh, to me for a people. And with each of these remembrances, they would drink from a glass of wine. It was during that third glass of wine, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm that Jesus took a cup during the Last Supper and said, this is the wine of the New Covenant. I will save you with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand. During the Passover Seder, you also um, eat green herbs and you dip them in salt water, which reminds you of the hyssop that you use to paint the lintels with the blood and the salt waters to remind the people of Israel how they cried and wept for God to save them. And how they felt the oppression. To remind themselves of the ten plagues, they, take, they dip their finger in a glass of wine and they flick ten drops, which look like blood on your table. To remind you of blood and frogs and lice and flies and blight and boils and hail and lokeness, darkness and the slaying of the firstborn. You eat unleavened bread during the Passover say to remind you that in your desperation to flee, there was no time to bake bread properly. And not just tasting the tears, but you actually eat now um, uh, horseradish to bring tears to your eyes and pain to your head to remind you of the bitterness of life that you experienced. And on your tables, often um, the bone of a lamb from a lamb shank reminding you of the sacrifice that saved your family right as you eat the passover meal you literally re-experience every element of the of the exodus experience you taste the bitterness you taste the tears you remembered the bloodshed and you remember your freedom i want to suggest that almost all of worship at its best Becomes an enacted parable in the same way, particularly the sacraments of communion and baptism, right? Because all of our greatest acts of worship unite the physical and the spiritual. Worship invites the participation of our whole selves—body, mind, and soul; heart and mind; maleness and femaleness; oldness and young. They invite us to participate in the reality of God's grace. They are a sermon made visible. They set forth visibly the glory of God's grace and salvation. Their sermons made physical. So that when um, you take a child and you anoint the child and dedicate them to the Lord, they're marked with the sign of the cross and the covenant. At baptism, if you um, do it by immersion, believers are buried and then they rise again into new life. And then when we serve communion to one another, we break bread remembering that Christ's body was broken for us. And we remember the Passover. And the cup of redemption becomes the cup of the new covenant. And we take it and eat and our bodies are involved. You see, worship and our entire faith needs to be incarnational, corporeal, and physical. Bread and wine, body and blood. We aren't, and God did not intend us to be, disembodied souls who are worshiping God in the purity of our inner world. Our bodies aren't just a husk that God intends to throw away. The most true part of yourself is not just your soul, it's your body and soul together as a united whole. We are spiritual and physical beings. Our bodies matter to God. And I think the church makes the opposite error that the world often makes. Most non-Christians, I think, assume that all that matters is the body, and too often the church thinks that all that matters is the soul. This actually was made very clear to me when Becky Pippert was talking to a friend of hers, and she recorded it in her book, Hope Has Its Reasons. One of her friends who had just become a Christian but was still young um, had been very sexually promiscuous before and was still sexually promiscuous early in her faith, and finally she turned to Becky and said, Sex is evil. The only reason it's there is to get us into trouble and to lead us into bondage. I thought when I became a Christian that my drives would go away. It just shows you how unspiritual I am that I can still be so sexual after becoming a Christian. And Becky Turner said, "You know, you can no longer, you can no more cease being sexual than you can cease being human. I mean, and who said that becoming a Christian makes you kind of dry up sexually?" And the woman said, "But you know, sexless leads to addiction. Therefore, I have to learn to stop being sexual, as an act of discipleship." And I think with a lot of insight, she, Becky Pippert said, no, you have to stop the addiction. You'll never cease being sexual. Your problem is that you think all of your problems are sexual. What's your hunger for? Surely it's part of the longing for nurture and for intimacy. But there's a deeper for hunger for God that you've ignored. I can understand why you've used... Um, an affair and sexual experience to fill the void. Romantic love and sexual fulfillment are so close to what we want, and it's so much easier to get a quick fix that momentarily fills our longings than to go to God. And this helped her friend because her friend said, Look, Becky, I need a man who's going to hold me. I don't think God's enough. You're right. I want sex, I want love, and I want nurture. So don't try to fool me that God in prayer can satisfy my longings. And Becky said, But you've had sex. Lots of it. If sex or romantic love were the complete answer, you wouldn't be in the mess that you're in right now. I'm not saying all you need is God. What I'm telling you is that you're starving to death in one area and transferring all of your needs, even your need for God, into another area. And the more fervently and feverishly you demand that this area meets all of your needs, the greater your hunger and torment are. You're saying you're only made of earth. I'm saying you're made of heaven as well. And I think what Becky Pepper captured in that conversation was uh, we are both. We're both physical beings that God delights in as well as spiritual beings that God cares about. That physical and spiritual together is what God intended. This is why I think physical illness is actually a spiritual issue. By those of us who've experienced chronic illness or someone who's experienced chronic illness realizes that it's not just enough to say, oh, well, just pray it will all be better, but our bodies profoundly affect the way our spirits operate. And our spirits profoundly affect the health of our body. It's why social righteousness issues are important, because it's not just souls that God desires to save, it's whole people that he cares about
1: Why loving our neighbor as
0: ourselves means not only sharing the good news to change their spiritual trajectory, but as our brothers reminded us with the Salvation Army, engaging in the practical social needs of people, care for people as people, people as God created them. It's why what you do and how you work matters and reflects who you are spiritually. I was reading a book earlier this morning just for fun, and um, the author was a Jew who became a Christian, they said, Christians are so obsessed with just the abstract faith issues of how they feel and what they think. The Jews have realized maybe more important is what you do. And what you do shapes who you are, what you think, and what you feel. It's the practices of Sabbath, of keeping kosher, that are more important. As many a Jewish theologian have said, Jews keep the Sabbath, but in the long run, over the course of the last 5,000 years, the Sabbath has kept the Jews. You see, in the long run, our future is both spiritual and physical. Because as Christians, we don't believe in the resurrection of the disembodied ghost of the dead. We believe in the resurrection of the body. Creation matters. A new creation is in store. Our goal is not to escape to a disembodied future in heaven floating around on some clouds. But we believe God will redeem and recreate the world. And bodily, we will return. Just as Jesus did transformed, transfigured, greater than we ever thought possible, but still physically present enough to touch, enough so that Jesus could taste and Jesus could feel. As theologian N.T. Wright pointed out, we don't believe in just life after death. Certainly we do that. We believe in life after life and death. When the people of God return, physical, entering a physical new creation where God is glorified and Redemption is offered. I bring this up because in the end, as we worship, as we gather in fellowship around a table, as we meet in small groups, worship isn't just disembodied feelings, abstract thoughts, however accurate. It's a whole body participation in what God is doing. And God, therefore, reminds the people of Israel, Remember and observe. We live and re-experience so that in mind and body, together we engage in the worship of God. Who you are and what you are matters. And God's delighted. What would it look like for us as a congregation? To embody a whole person response to God. I think it would free us from thinking that our emotions and our thoughts and how we feel determines the quality of our spiritual life. It would free us to actually act in ways which our bodies long to, to reflect the glory of God in the practical service we offer one another and the whole-bodied response that we have in worship. It prevents that weird dichotomy of believing that everything physical that we see no longer really matters and all that really matters is the unadulterated mind standing before God, because that's not Christian, that's really Buddhist at best. I think, as I talk to college students who long to find God, as I read the newspapers and listen to the radio, as I watch what happens on CNN.com as a news source, rarely have they asked for greater sincerity, increased passion, or theological astuteness. From the church at this time and age what they're asking for and crying out for is an embodied faith one where right thinking and right feeling have manifested into right action there's a reason I suspect that while the media and the popular culture may mock almost every religious leader in the world at this time and place Mother Teresa is the one they dare not do it with will not do it with I can't even imagine doing it with because as you look at her ministry in her life, she remembered what God had done, even through decades of spiritual darkness. She relived on a daily moment God's acts of salvation as you work, as you minister, the body you minister to is Christ Jesus in front of you. And she wedded body and soul, mind and heart into one glorious act of worship that For non-Christian and Christian alike points to the reality of Jesus in a way that even the most skeptical, cynical people can't deny. So, the little rolly thing is still under a dresser somewhere, or in our case, under a chair. We can't see it, yet it's there. We can't touch or taste God, but he's there. Yet, when we worship, if we remember and relive God's acts saving through history, It will encourage us in our faith. It will give us a witness that's worth listening to. A powerful opportunity to be whole people before a whole God. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm grateful uh, for being here. Um, As I watch this congregation um, grow and mature over the years, Um, i see how they put their faith into action i see how they care for one another and the community around them and on weeks where they demonstrate uh distribute tambourines and noisemakers during worship as they worship and as they pray i see them putting their body into action so lord uh, thank you for the bodies you've given us thank you for the hearts and minds and spirits May we remember your works throughout history and in the present so we have confidence for the future. May we relive your salvation so that it's fresh to us day by day. Your mercies are new every morning. May we experience that and know that. To your glory. Amen.